Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. The Gateway Arch is known in many parts of the world as the symbol of St. Louis. It represents the city and the country's westward expansion. Next Tuesday, the Gateway Arch National Park will open its new visitor center and museum to the public. It's the culmination of a $380 million effort that began five years ago. We turn now to a sneak peek of the visitor center and museum with St. Louis Public Radio reporter Mary Leonard. At the Arch Grounds, Mary started her tour outside and talked with historian Bob Moore of the National Park Service. We're approaching through the new entrance. Right, this is our new, as we're calling it, the west entrance. It's on the, the west side of the facility and is different from the old entrances, which were at the legs of the arch on the north and south sides. So this is our new kind of air quotes west entrance that it's a dramatic, more dramatic approach than the the old way of getting in. I I totally agree with that. I it is an amazing uh, and grand and fitting entrance to uh, a national monument, national memorial like that, like the arch is. So this is very very special. But it didn't in any way obstruct Saarinen's vision. Right. That was our main uh, worry at the beginning, and what we conveyed to the architects was that we didn't want the uh, landscape to be changed or interrupted uh, significantly. We didn't want the arch to be overshadowed by anything. We wanted something that was fitting and special and grand, but so quite a, a task for a designer, you know. We don't want this, we want that, but I think they really delivered and uh, the materials they used, the stainless steel and glass, really helped to accentuate the older architecture of the arch itself, which is frankly timeless. You know, it doesn't, I mean, it was designed in 1947. It was uh, built in 1963 to 65, but it really hasn't aged and, and seems just as fresh today as when it was completed. Do you think he'd like this? approach this new entry? It's hard to say, you know, but uh, I think he was always thinking and designing and he never really stopped, you know, even for structures that had been built. He was always thinking about, well, what's a better way to do this? What would look better? So every time I talked to Kevin Roche, who was uh, an architect in Arrow's office and worked closely with him on this project, he would say that, you know, Arrow was a visionary. He was always looking toward the future. And, you know, anything that was going to make things more accessible to the public, that was going to give people more background information and uh, educate them would be something that would be at the top of his list. He really would want to do that. Bob, why don't we go inside? Sounds good. We're now in the visitor entrance lobby which um, there's a lot of things going on here that don't immediately meet the eye. What you're seeing is a beautiful view looking to the west of the old courthouse building, which is on axis with the arch and on axis with this uh, entryway. Uh, Beautiful sunlight coming through. It's a nice uh, pretty day with blue sky outside. And then over our head you see this series of skinny tubes And those all have LED lights in them, which bounce off of a stainless steel ceiling between the actual beams that are holding up 
the ground that's above our heads. Uh, there's so much light from those that it looks almost like daylight in the area where we are. And of course, it's a very wide open, clean looking, very um, white space that we're in. The terrazzo floor, the walls, and those tubes overhead are all white in color with a lot of accents of stainless steel. So that's really what we're seeing. What we're not really seeing is the infrastructure that was placed in here that really comes from years of knowledge about what visitors do in historic sites and what their needs are and also the deficiencies that we had in the way that the old visitor center was configured the way that you would come in. So we know now, for instance, that on very busy days we get large crowds of people that needed to be processed through uh, security to come into the facility. And because of that, a lot of times people would end up standing outdoors in the rain or in the heat. This new facility allows us to uh, not only have a canopy over people who might be queuing outside, but hopefully to avoid anybody having to queue for very long because the entire space that we're in right now is pre-security. As I look out this the windows here, this panoramic view of the city, I have to say this is where you really get the sense of what it meant to connect the arch with St. Louis and the, and, the, and the city. Right, yeah, I think that the architects have done us proud not only in the facility that they created but in the theoretical aspects of what they've done because this does, to me, encapsulate that goal that the City Arch River Committee had from the beginning of wanting to connect the arch with the greater part of the city and downtown. And from the uh, viewpoint of the National Park Service, you have the old courthouse and you have the arch, and they were two totally different kinds of historic monuments, but now they at least uh, seem to be a little more connected to one another. Right, there's a visual connection now between the arch and the courthouse so that uh, it will probably inspire more people to go and visit the courthouse knowing that it's part of the park and seeing it front and center as they look out through the windows. Let's go down to the next level. Okay. So this looks like an interesting floor. <laughs> what, what do we have here? Well, uh, this is our mezzanine level and this is halfway between the entrance level and the uh, the main level where the museum exhibits are located. Uh, this area was set aside uh, as a place for education programs, perhaps in the daytime and in the evening for events, uh, because we do expect to have many events that take place here at the Arch. Um, and it was decided early on that we would try to make this educational by placing a map of the United States here which would show St. Louis's position in the nation and also show the major westward trails that uh, left from this area during the historic period. So uh, we're standing on a, a gigantic map of the United States. Uh, the peninsula of Florida is longer than a person, uh, to, just to give you an idea. So the peninsula is probably about eight or nine feet long. Um, and everything's in scale. Uh, major river systems are shown. 
and then there's little dots that show the trail systems going west. Now, all this was done in Terrazzo, which a lot of people are familiar seeing in schools, hospitals, and other uh, public buildings as a flooring material, but it's somewhat rare to see areas delineated, as was done with this, to show mountains, lakes, and rivers, and that there would be different colors of the terrazzo and stone used to uh, give it the appearance that you see here. And this was all done by Missouri Terrazzo in St. Louis, so it was a local company that uh, put all this together. And that dot there in the center, is that us? That is us. There's a red dot in the center, and it's surrounded by a much larger yellow circle to give the idea of a, a sort of a radius around St. Louis uh, of about 100 miles or so. I like the perspective. There's nothing about that dot that says flyover zone. That mm. says we're the heart of this nation right here in the center. That is pretty, uh, pretty impressive. I'm sure you'll have kids that will be going down the river. Right. Well, that's what we thought, that we believe that our rangers will be able to come out and do an education program or perhaps start a program here. And let's say they were doing a program on Lewis and Clark. They could have the kids actually follow the Lewis and Clark Trail, follow those dots going west, go up the Missouri River and go out to Oregon. Uh, or if they were doing a trail on the, or, or rather a program on the uh, the Overland Trails, the Oregon-bound emigrants in the 1840s and 50s. So there'd be a lot of applications that this map could have just to teach geography and the sense of the distances that were involved. The only thing that appears to be missing is Route 66. Right, Route 66. Well, that's pretty much along the Santa Fe Trail. So I think we have it covered in some ways. That's true. That's true. So now we're going down yet to another level? Right. We are descending one more level. We've kind of come halfway from the entrance level, and we're going down another set of steps to get down to the lowest level where our exhibits are located. This entryway here, okay, this is uh, a a little different as well. There's some digital screens here, and this is, uh, what, what are we, what is the story with these screens? Well, we call this area Heading West, and this is the introduction to our exhibit space. Uh, Our exhibit designers were intrigued with the notion that even though we were talking about the American West and moving west in our exhibits, people are actually walking east as they go in. So they had the idea, why don't we show westward expansion? Why don't we show people moving west on large screens that people see as an introductory feature to the exhibit. Oh, that's interesting. So basically, as I'm walking in, I'm seeing uh, the the pioneers heading westward. Toward you. Toward yeah. me. They're coming yes. towards you. Yeah. We have little nature pulses that are maybe about 30 seconds long that divide the larger sequences. We have a buffalo stampede, Lewis and Clark in their uh, keelboat going up the Missouri River. We have a train in the 1880s. So on and on and on, many, many scenes of westward expansion. So where are we standing right now? We're actually on our way into the museum. Is this where the museum has always been? Is this the 
kind of the yes, when we, I'm standing here, if I have been to the museum in the past and I and I'm standing here, am I now in what was the old museum? Yes. You've just crossed a threshold, which is where uh, the glass panels are and uh, just in this area. And this was the area that was the back of the old museum. So if you remember uh, those people who have visited before and saw the old museum might remember we had a teepee with a sunset scene behind that directly as you looked from the Jefferson statue to the west and that's where we are right now we're right where the teepee used to be wow so it really is so much more open the museum was pretty dark even though we're walking into a space that is clearly underground and doesn't have the uh, all of the the light that we just um, had out there it still just doesn't feel and I'm going to use the word claustrophobic. It used to always feel just a little bit cramped. It was sort of cave-like. That's Gateway Arch historian Bob Moore of the National Park Service giving our reporter Mary Leonard a tour of the new visitor center and museum. It opens to the public next Tuesday. When we come back, we'll go inside the museum. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast of St. Louis on the Air, brought to you by University College at Washington University. With undergraduate and graduate programs, part-time, evening, and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. Welcome back. We now return to the Gateway Arch, where our reporter, Mary Leonard, is getting a behind-the-scenes tour of the Gateway Arch. The visitor center and completely revamped museum below the arch will open to the public on Tuesday. Here's Mary. So, as I stand here at the entrance to the museum, uh, it, are, is it divided up into galleries? And uh, as, a, as a first-time visitor, where do I start? Well, there is a panel on the side which gives you an overview of the exhibit spaces and how they're arranged. And basically, off of the hallway, we have six galleries, six different time periods that we've chosen in not just St. Louis history, but specifically the history of this plot of ground where the arch is today, the 90 acres where the arch stands, was very important in American history, and we've tried to show that importance through the items that we've gathered together for our exhibits. Before we go um, into the museum and, and begin to look at specific exhibits, talk a little bit about the whole approach to telling that story of St. Louis history, but also westward expansion history. We're, we're going to be seeing a lot of um, not only different exhibits, but sort of a, a different approach to telling that story. Right. Our old exhibits, I always felt, were a general history of the American West. And it's almost as though you could have picked up the museum lock, stock, and barrel and put it on display anywhere in the American West. It could have been in Denver. It could have been in Kansas City. It could have been in San Francisco. What we wanted to do was to personalize it, you know, do what in the Park Service we call place-based interpretation. So we wanted what we tell our visitors to be about this place. 
one thing that got me going on this idea was that I talked to our salespeople before we ever began, and they gave me a list of their top 20 selling items. And, you know, 17 of those items were all very specific to this site. Was something about the arch, something about something that happened in St. Louis. It was all about the site. And so from that I realized that when people come, they're perhaps eager to know a larger context for the story, but what they really want to know about is the site they've come to visit. You know, it's, it's almost like if you put it in very simple terms, they walk in the door and they say, tell me why I came. What's important about this place? Why did you make it into a national park? And so what we've tried to do in our exhibits is give them the answer to those questions. And what is the answer, Bob? Well, I think it's a, a very complex answer, really, uh, that we are standing on a spot, or just because we're underground, below some spots, that had a tremendous impact on the story of the United States. And that story dealt not only with specific incidents that happened here, but the idea of St. Louis being a, a literal gateway to the West, a way that people passed from East to West. Uh, and so that's the story that we've tried to tell. And so we're standing in the colonial period gallery, right? This moment, Yes, right? we're in the uh, gallery that starts our story when French fur traders came to this spot in 1764 and began to cut down trees to create a village that would uh, stand as a trading post and be a commercial town along the Mississippi River. And it was going to be very close to the confluence with the Missouri, which was very important for the people who were here at being uh, French-speaking citizens now under the aegis of the government of Spain uh, but trying to avoid becoming part of uh, Great Britain, which was on the other side of the river. So we have a very complex colonial history that we try to tell in this area, especially through a map-based program which leads up to the Louisiana Purchase. But most of the exhibit is about the 40 years between the founding in 1764 and the purchase in 1804, which we didn't talk about in our old museum at all. The old museum began with Thomas Jefferson and talked about Lewis and Clark, but totally skipped over the period that is told in this gallery, the story that's told here, which is about those early French-speaking residents. You address slavery in colonial St. Louis. If you would just talk briefly about that, because I do get that question from folks as well. Yeah, well, throughout the museum, we've tried to be as inclusive as we can. So we tell the story from many different perspectives. Uh, we talk about American Indians and how things greatly changed their lives when Europeans came here, and also African Americans who were brought here against their will and lived in these communities along the river. Uh, there was slavery in Missouri up till 1865. The early slaves were here under the French. And uh, we know that there were many people who were enslaved. In fact, St. Louis's early population was about one-third African-American. Uh, so we had really a huge proportion of the population who were African who lived here. Uh, some of those people 
were able to gain their freedom. And so they lived here in colonial St. Louis as free persons of color. And we had at least eight, sometimes nine households of people who were African Americans living here, had their own homes, had their own businesses, and were looked at as, well, almost equal members of the community, never really totally equal, unfortunately, but uh, under the laws that existed at the time, uh, kind of a better shake under the French than they would get under the Americans later on. As we move through these exhibits, we're, we're skipping into different time periods. Right, and, and we're going to actually go across the hallway to get to the very next time period, which is right after the Louisiana Purchase, after things changed radically here in St. Louis for uh, the people who were living here. And I see we're giving Thomas Jefferson some of his due here. Right. Jefferson has a central role in this gallery because it was really his uh, vision for what the West could be that gave people the concepts that were utilized as the Americans started to come into this area and to change things. Uh, Things were changed pretty radically even overnight uh, for the French-speaking people who lived here. And... uh, Jefferson's government came in, uh, a lot of lawyers came into the area. We hadn't had lawyers here before, different kind of court system and laws. So there was a lot of adjustment that had to be uh, undergone by the people who lived here. And this central area kind of talks about Jefferson's different notions about the West, the idea of exploring and kind of quantifying what was out there, the idea of measuring and... uh, sort of imposing a grid on the land itself, uh, which we still have today. You know, we still have the same uh, township and range system that uh, began with Jefferson and sending explorers out into the West like Lewis and Clark. Uh, In his Indian relations, he had the idea, unfortunately, that Indians should be asked to leave the East and move west of the Mississippi River. Uh, It started as a suggestion. Later in time, under Andrew Jackson, it became a command and resulted in the Trail of Tears. Uh, But this is something that we cover in this part of the exhibit where we talk about these concepts and ideas that originated with Jefferson. The old museum didn't really tell that story. I don't think they told it well enough. You know, we really have... Throughout this park, and this includes the old courthouse, too, where the Dred Scott case took place, we really have what I call America's original sins, and we have two of them. One was slavery, and the other was the treatment of the American Indians. And so throughout the galleries, we've tried to address those and be you know, honest and upfront about them. Well, tell me about the Missouri Fur Company. Well, you're looking at the long-lost old rock house, which was the last uh, building left standing on what's now the arch grounds back in the 1930s when they tore all the buildings down. Uh, This eventually had to come down to make way for the arch, uh, particularly, specifically for the uh, train tunnels that went in front of the arch. They had to remove the building in 1959. And so it was put in storage with the idea that someday it would be rebuilt Basically, this is all that's left of it today. So 
we've b- rebuilt the, the front facade of the building, the side that faced the river, at full scale, except for the gable at the very top, uh, reusing all the old materials, and uh, the windows and shutters were from the restoration that was done in 1943. The stones were the same ones that were used in the 1818 structure that uh, was originally a fur trade warehouse for the Missouri Fur Company and later was a sail loft uh, making covers for covered wagons. Still later was a well-known saloon and uh, night spot here in St. Louis. So if I walk through the, the doors of the, the door of the Missouri Fur Company, where am I? Well, now we have changed time periods, and we've gone uh, ahead in time to the 1838 to 1860 period on the St. Louis Riverfront, where we get a concept of the busy nature of the levee that existed here, uh, the busy port, which was the third uh, busiest in the United States at the time in terms of the tonnage that was passing through. That includes seaports. New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore. This was the third busiest port in the United States. And this would have been the um, heyday of the wagon trains heading out of right. The city? So simultaneously with this idea of you know steamboats coming in and being able to move goods up and down the rivers at the same pace, uh, going up as going down. Uh, it was also a time when there were thousands of immigrants headed west over the overland trails and a lot of them came here to st louis to buy the things that they needed for their trip so we've also tried to portray that in this gallery we're moving into a different time period so we're going back across the hall this time we're really not switching time periods we're staying in the same time but we're looking at things from a national perspective on this side So this was the heyday of early St. Louis. It was when so many people were passing through the city. And it was also a time when the idea of manifest destiny sort of possessed Americans. And they felt that they had the God-given right to move out into the West, to relocate American Indians, to fight a war with Mexico that many people thought was an illegal and immoral war, including... Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses Grant, for two, uh, who were much opposed to the Mexican War, even though Grant fought in it. Um, And so in this area, we try to tell these stories from multiple perspectives. So we've got the perspective of the westward-bound emigrants. We've got the perspective of the Mexicans and their thoughts about the war that was fought. And we've also got the perspective of American Indians whose lands were being crossed and uh, kind of despoiled by all the wagon trains and then taken away from them if they were tribes from the Pacific Northwest. What what is that sound we're hearing? Throughout the exhibits, they've created a series of soundscapes to try to add another dimension to the stories that are being told. So we're in the middle of a thunderstorm on the Great Plains right now, Uh, as we're walking along, trudging along, perhaps beside our covered wagon, uh, through the mud that's being uh, made by all the rain that's coming down. 
did you consult with, um, say, the Native American um, historians? Absolutely. Yeah, we consulted with a whole host of historians on all the things that we're talking about in the exhibits. And in particular, we had a wonderful cadre of Native people from several different tribes who we consulted with uh, throughout the process. And, and how does that work? I mean, I, I would imagine there's some real push and pull in terms of telling a story like that. Well, I think so, but I think, you know, our goal all all throughout was to try to tell multiple perspectives. So that didn't really enter into it where we would say, well, you know, we don't subscribe to that perspective or we don't look at it that way. Well, everybody looks at it differently, and we've tried to show those different points of view. And now is this, uh, we're walking into the final gallery? We're walking across the hall into the sixth of our six galleries. Uh, And this one is about the construction of the arch. Another uh, aspect of exhibits that we didn't have in our old museum. So this is a completely new section where we're telling a story that we didn't get to tell before. As I stand here, I see stainless steel. Yeah, this structure which has monitors on it and uh, attempts to tell the story visually of the design and construction of the arch from three different perspectives, the civic, the engineers, and the architects, uh, is kind of a sweeping stainless steel design, not the same as the arch, but kind of uh, gives that same sort of futuristic perspective. Is the material similar to what? Mm -hmm. So if I touch this, it's a little bit like touching the arch? A little bit like touching the arch, yeah. So as I stand here in this gallery, it, it strikes me that there's kind of two reasons that people come into this museum. Like you said before, there are the people who are looking for history and a sense of history. And then there are the people who just want to know, how did you build that 630-foot-tall stainless steel monument? Right, exactly. And uh, that's why we wanted to put this gallery together, to give people an idea of how it was done. And, of course, there's more. You know, as we go into the tram lobby, there's models that we'll see in a minute. There's the big uh, dream wall presentation, which talks about the uh, construction. Uh, So in this gallery, we have some things about the construction and some things about the design and the competition that was held in the 1940s. And we also talk about the buildings that were torn down on the riverfront. Uh, There's an area that's at the very beginning of the gallery that has photographs of the buildings that were torn down. I think it's always really fun to look at some of the entries for the design competition. Just in a nutshell, explain that design competition and and how this worked. We just didn't wake up one day and say in St. Louis we're going to build an arch. Right. Well, the riverfront was cleared in 1939 to 1942 in anticipation that there would be a monument to westward expansion here in St. Louis. But the war intervened, World War II, There was no money available, and they waited until after the war. In 1947, an architectural competition was run to try to decide what the memorial would look like, and they got 172 entries from across the country. That was whittled down to five semifinalists, one of them being the arch, and eventually the jury unanimously chose the arch in 1948, as the actual design that would go forward. Um, One reason why you don't usually see the other 
entries in the competition is because most of them just don't hold a candle to the arts. They're not anywhere near as interesting or uh, kind of awe-inspiring as the arch itself, which kind of sprang completely out of Saarinen's head uh, just almost exactly the way that you see it today back in 1947. So his original design, his idea is what moved forward throughout the years and what, uh, with a lot of refinements, a lot of tweaks, a lot of changes was actually built. You also pay homage to the, the guys that built the arch, actually physically went out and put that stainless steel together. Right. We have a display just behind us here of uh, some of the tools that they used and uh, one of the original hard hats that uh, one of the guys wore. Uh, and then there's four oral histories that will be on the audio sticks that you see here uh, with four different workers who helped to build the arch. You've had some folks getting some peaks. What is the general thought of people who have come in and gotten a peek at what you're doing here? Well, I haven't heard any negative comments yet, so I'm waiting for that. Uh, I don't think we're going to get any. Everybody's been very, very positive about the experience, about what they're seeing, about the the entire new look and uh, feel of the arch and what a visit will be like, which will be, I think, much more pleasant, much more efficient, much more educational than what a visit would have been a few years ago. You know, people who have been, you know, older folks who remember the arch being built, and I happen to be one of them. There's always this tendency to say, oh, don't change it. Don't don't make anything different. It, it is what it is. That's the way it was. That's the way it was designed. So you, you always have to address a little bit of that. In terms of the experience itself, though, it would seem that even those folks could look around and say, you know, this is pretty good. Well, we, we certainly hope so. I think they will. I think that the uh, the arch experience itself really won't have changed. It's going to be the same. We really haven't changed, uh, you know, what the ride to the top is like or what that experience is. Uh, we want everybody to exit at the legs of the arch so that they get a chance to sort of be up close with the arch, to be able to touch it, feel like they're part of it. Uh, so that experience will stay the same. Uh, we've really thought carefully about all those things and how we can change things to make them better without changing them to make people feel like they've missed something that they used to enjoy in the past. It's always a pleasure to come out here and spend a part of my day learning some arch history from you. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's reporter Mary Leonard getting a sneak peek of the new visitor center and museum at the Gateway Arch. The grand reopening celebration is Tuesday. To see photos, visit stlpublicradio.org. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.